been a lot of work. It's been hard. Relationships are hard. And uh, we end today uh, with a lesson on marriage. Uh, it may be for you, and your, as you sit there, from your perspective, an odd place to end. Um, after all, I'm guessing only about 4% of the room is married. Doesn't seem pressingly relevant uh, to you uh, at, the, at the moment. For many of you, almost all of you, except for like a very few exceptions, marriage isn't on your immediate radar. Um, and uh, if we sort of extend our concerns uh, and think about other things, um, you know, we have social critics today calling for and predicting the end of marriage. This is a passe thing. Uh, why are we doing this? It's regressive. It's oppressive. It doesn't seem to work anymore. And uh, and many people, including maybe some of you, are thinking, marriage, well, maybe when I'm 28, when I no longer want to have fun. Um, when, I'm, when I'm done having fun and enjoying my freedom, maybe then I'll get married. Uh, I want us to rethink marriage today. The Bible begins with marriage and it ends with marriage. And all along, it talks about the importance of it and the goodness of it. It doesn't say singleness is bad. Not at all, actually. Um, It says singleness is good. But God is consistently affirming the goodness of marriage, even when it's often disappointing. And uh, he hasn't given up on it. So I think we should rethink about it today. The text is Ephesians 5. It's a good one, but a hard one. That's my fair warning. I'm going to read, and uh, you're free to follow along up there. Starting in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now skipping over to verse 22. It's time to start offending people. Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Good Father, as we come uh, to your word at the end of this semester, we come uh, probably with about a thousand different collective thoughts in the room. Um, Very busy, very distracted, preoccupied, worried, stressed, worn down. And uh, I understand. I think I feel all those things myself. And uh, Father, we need you tonight, we pray, to uh, refresh us with this word. And... uh, for some people, to be really surprising that this text could surprise us in its goodness. We pray you would do that. Show us the goodness of marriage and behind it your goodness and your kindness toward us. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
So in 2009, uh, this guy in Manhattan, whose last name is Remus, sued his wedding photographer. His wedding photographer failed to record the last 15 minutes of the reception, and he sought $4,100, which was the original price for his services, to recover that $4,100, and then sought an additional $48,000 in damages. What for? In order to completely recreate the wedding. He wanted to completely recreate the wedding. All the dress, all the family, flown across the country, entire ceremony, the entire reception, just like it was, beginning to end. About six years after the wedding. Despite the fact that he and his wife were divorced. Despite the fact that his wife had moved back to Latvia. Despite the fact that he didn't know where she was in Latvia. Um... Yeah, in, in the suit, he says, we are very much happy with the wedding event and would like to have it documented for eternity for us and our families. Um, I get that some people like their wedding day and like their wedding pictures uh, and that they're important to people. But it's a little strange to me that uh, after the marriage has fallen apart, that it would mean this much to him. Um, one uh, article put it this way, sort of summed it up. Of all the many things that make up a wedding, few are more important than the photographs. I'm not saying I agree with this. I think it's interesting. Long after the last of the cake has grown stale and the tossed bouquet has wilted in the photos, they still endure. They stir memories. They provide a vivid proof that this day of one's dreams really did take place. I get that. I could see why he would want those photos. But I find this strange story. To, I think it sort of tells another interesting story. I think it tells a bigger story of, uh, of our culture today and what it thinks about marriage. Uh, certainly there are exceptions and there are exceptions in the room. But currently we're a culture that's, frankly, high on sex, low on marriage, High on weddings, high on wedding days, high on wedding day expenses and extravagance, high on wedding day photography, high on all the romantic trappings of that particular day. And I think for many people going into marriage, their idea of marriage is that day. And that marriage will be like that day, every day, over and over again. I say that with someone who has some experience in marriage and premarital counseling. Um, it's as though, for many people, the only picture of marriage they have is either the romantic idealism of their wedding day, where everything is perfect and wonderful with all the fluttery butterflies and it's all great, or the exact opposite, the deeply pessimistic, marriage sucks, why would you ever want to do that? And... Uh, it's, it's actually my contention that one leads to the other. That the very high romantic ideal that some people have about what marriage should look like actually leads to this really deep-seated pessimism and cynicism that we have today. So what I want to do today is just sort of draw out for you how I think the Bible gives us a much better portrait of marriage. A much better portrait of marriage. Um, and I'm aware... Culturally aware that uh, in our day and age, in our place in 21st century Western America, not Western America, Western civilization, that the Bible's view on marriage is considered either on the somewhere on the scale, I guess, of regressive or oppressive, 
or just foolish, naive, and no longer workable. Uh, my contention actually is the way things are currently being done, which is not the Bible's view of marriage, is regressive and unworkable. What we're doing today in our culture, in marriage, and in dating, and in living together, is terrible for us. It is not workable. It's not good for us as humans, as families, and as a society. And the Bible gives us a much better picture. Uh, It gives us a better beginning and a better end and a better wedding portrait overall. So uh, let's talk about the better beginning. Almost all weddings begin well, right? Almost all marriages begin well. The wedding day is great. Um, I've probably officiated like 15 or 16 weddings now. They've all been great, except for one where the groom stepped on a broken glass bottle and was 15 to 30 minutes late for his own wedding and ran in with a bloody bandaged foot. And, uh, but that was good, too. They still got married. It was a great day. Uh, almost all marriages begin well. They do. And, uh, again, I've said this before. I have, like, the best seat in the house um, to see the bride and the groom come together with their families and their friends. Um, I'm convinced, and I'm a deeply, pretty deeply cynical person, those of you that know me. That's a confession. That's not a good thing necessarily. But I am convinced that no one walks down the aisle on their wedding day planning on getting divorced. No doubt there are people in the aisle. I mean, in, in, maybe in the wedding party and certainly in the, in the uh, broader congregation that think, like, this couple's got a year at best. Um, but the participants themselves, they're not cynical. They're excited about what they're doing. They think this is going to last. They think this is the best day of their lives, and they may be right. But I'm also convinced that the seeds of uh, marital success or failure are already in place by the first day. Not that you can't grow out of it, not that you can't fix it, but all that is needed to have a good marriage might be in place, and all that's needed to ruin a marriage may be in place the day you walk down the aisle, or the day you stand there waiting for your bride to come. And I want to start with something that seems really counterintuitive and ironic, and I'm afraid you may misunderstand me when I say this, but my first thing I want to say about beginnings is beware your high expectations. Currently, in our culture, I'm doing some cultural analysis before textual analysis here, if you haven't noticed. I think it works like this. When we think about marriage, we do what? We look for who? There's a phrase. Who are you looking for? A soulmate. You're looking for a soulmate. Somewhere between 80 and 90% of Americans believe they have a soulmate. It's really high. It's a really highly romantic ideal. What is a soulmate? Well, when uh, people were pressed to define this, they basically said someone who will meet all their physical, emotional, material, and sexual needs. Okay. Fits perfectly like a glove. That's great. It means someone who's really deeply compatible. And when researchers at the University of Virginia press this, what does compatibility mean? Um, the research basically led to these following pieces of data. Compatibility means physically attractive and we have great sexual chemistry. That's the first answer. That's what compatibility means. It means we can get it on. Okay. Uh, Secondly, it means uh, that we are free to be who we are. 
and uh, to seek our goals, to seek our dreams, to follow our desires without anyone seeking to change us. So compatibility for most Americans means I really like think they're hot and we can get it on and they let me be me. That's what we think compatibility is. Actually, that sounds like a great definition of like most 16-year-old boys to me. I'm sorry. I, just really, I really do think like that's a really immature definition of what compatibility is. Uh, if, you, if you put all the information together, I think we have this really interesting composite sketch of this soulmate. It's an ideal person who needs nothing from me. Needs nothing from me. Because I've got my own dreams and desires and things I have to do. They need nothing from me. And they don't demand anything of me. But they meet all my needs. And they're hot. These are the expectations, frankly, not of like marital partners. These are the expectations of consumers. And what we do as a culture is we go out and we shop for the perfect person. We go looking for the perfect person, the soulmate, who'll do all these things for us. And uh, frankly, because, well, frankly, because these ideal models don't exist or hardly ever exist, we're a little slow to commit. Uh, I, I believe that the reason that now half of all U.S. couples are cohabitating instead of marrying is because when it regards... As it regards commitment, we, uh, we are strongly in the mm, definitely maybe camp. Meaning, I'm not sure you meet my ideal. I don't know if you're my soul or not. I'm not really sure. And so we have a culture now that's moved from long-term committed marriage to let's try this on for a while. Let's sort of lease each other and see how it goes. And, uh, and it's not working out well, actually. Uh, the idea here is to invest little so we don't get hurt much. But the, the, the research has been coming out for 10, 15 years, and you can find it yourself. Uh, nothing good happens. Well, basically, that's not true. Sex happens. Sex happens. But relationally, these things don't go anywhere. Only one out of five cohabiting couples ever gets married. And those that do get married often, typically, don't last. Um, what happens is when you have these high expectations for the other person to be this ideal person and you expect them to meet all your needs, then the relationship is already suffering under this crushing weight of expectation. And uh, when things don't go well and you already aren't committed, then it's just really easy to drop them, trade them in, trade up for something better. And, uh, and it's in this way. When you just constantly do this, and we constantly do this as a culture, that uh, we grow from being very idealistic. There's a perfect person for me. And when I find them, everything will be great and perfect. They'll meet all my needs. It'll be wonderful. Oh, wait, I can't find anyone like that. Oh, wait, every time I find someone like that, they disappoint me. As that happens over and over, we become deeply pessimistic. We're, we're, we're now, as a culture, both highly idealistic and romantic about our soulmate and deeply pessimistic about the permanence of marriage. We don't think anything is going to last because we keep getting disappointed. And I think it's because we've got the wrong expectations. So let's embrace some realistic expectations. I think a good beginning starts with embracing some realistic expectations. And the first of which is just really simple. This is, this is marriage, relationship 101. Love is hard. Love is almost always hard. The only time it's not hard is when you're infatuated with each other and it seems like you're on drugs 
because it's just like pouring out of you and it's easy and it's great and it's like a high and it's wonderful. Um, and you don't need to sleep and you don't need to eat and you just want to spend time and you talk to each other for three hours on the phone until two in the morning and it doesn't matter. And really, if we live that way continually, which is what you sort of want, you would actually die. You would die probably within a year because you can't take it. You're not meant to live that way. Uh, and we actually need to be that deluded to actually move us far enough along to get committed, usually. Um, but usually, love is hard. Let's, let's look at the text real quick. I've been talking for 15 minutes. I haven't looked at the text. That sounds like a bad pastor thing. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul, Paul calls the Ephesians to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And uh, you can imagine being in a relationship and saying, yes, I'm called to love like Jesus. I should love people like Jesus loved people. Jesus loved people, that was good. I should love people too. And, uh, and we, if we think love is easy, then you look at what Jesus does in this text and you realize, no, love's not easy. Love's hard. What does he do? Uh, he gave himself up as a sacrifice. Sound easy? He forgave at the great cost of his own life. Not easy. Verse 29, he nourishes and cherishes. Now, you may read those things, and they don't have much of a category, they don't have much of a thick definition in your head, because perhaps you're not nourishing and cherishing. But I'm a parent, and I have to nourish and cherish and it's hard work. It takes time away from the things I need to be doing or want to be doing for myself to nourish and cherish. This is sacrificial love. This is what love looks like realistically on the ground every day. It's not easy. And you're thinking, man, this sounds terrible. You're right. I'm not going to get married anytime soon. Um, but there's lots of good news here. I want you to see it. And it's a little hard to see, but it's there underneath everything. If Jesus loved you this way, and if you're in Christ, this is what he's done. He's given himself for you. He nourishes and cherishes you. Then there's someone who knows exactly what you're like, deep down, all the time, in private, everywhere else, and still loves you. That's amazing. Deep down, we're all insecure that there would ever be another person that would know everything about us and still like us. The Bible says Jesus knows about you thoroughly all the way through and loved you so much he gave himself for you. That's great news. If Jesus has already done that for you, then you can be honest. You can be honest with him about your fears and your struggles. You can also be honest with your spouse or the person you're trying to get close to. And that honesty and the humility that comes from knowing Hey, I'm, I'm so good, Jesus had to die for me. Um, that is the main ingredient you actually need for a good relationship. The honesty and humility that you have from understanding what Christ has done for you is the best possible ingredient for a good relationship with one another. Uh, God's at work. Christ is at work in you, nourishing you and caring for you. That's great because you're going to need it because loving each other is hard. But he's at work in you. And when you know all these things about yourself, about how Christ loved you, then you can do something pretty radical. You can let the other person you're dating or you're married to be a normal human being. I.e., you don't have to, they don't have to be the perfect person who meets all your needs because there is no one like that. There never will be. They're just a human being flawed like you are for whom Jesus had to die. You can let them be a normal human being. 
You can be honest together. You can actually get to know each other as you really are and really care for each other instead of suffering together under the crushing weight of these impossible expectations. So that's the best... I want you to hear what I said. That's the best possible beginning. Okay? I know it doesn't sound like you're like, no, there's got to be an alternative way to get started. No, that's the best possible beginning. It really is. Um, and it leads to a great end. Some of you are thinking, like, that sounds like a roadmap to mediocrity. Uh, I don't know if I want that or not. Um, but really, this is the way to build a great marriage. And the Bible also here in Ephesians 5 sort of describes for us a better end. Um, so going back again, sort of talking about how our culture thinks about marriage and dating, a lot of folks, when you hear them thinking about marriage, and some of you yourselves, or your, this is what your mom does, or your friend who just got, just got married, their mom, what they say, oh, they're just so happy. Or, so long as they're happy. Or, I know it's probably not such a good idea, but they're happy. Uh, what we've done, by and large, in our culture, has we've made self-fulfillment, self-actualization, and our own happiness the end-all, be-all goal of all relationships. So long as you're happy, you should do what you want. And uh, once we're in that relationship with someone, whether it's marriage or whatever, uh, we have expectations. Again, we want the relationship to meet our needs, our desires. We're in this for something. And uh, when those expectations aren't met, what do we do? Well, you can get out of it. But usually what we do is we start making demands. We uh, start leveraging our rights. We start making trade agreements. Like, we start boycotting each other. We start, I'm talking like real life marital confession stuff here. We start uh, doing this conditional thing that's sort of like, when you do your thing like you're supposed to, I'll do my thing like I'm supposed to. Like, when you start respecting me, I'll start loving you. When you start doing that, I'll start doing this. And uh, when, when both people in a relationship are coming from a position where they're thinking, I'm in this relationship to have my needs met, and I need you to do your job to meet my needs, that thing is done. It's done. It, it just doesn't have any way to grow. One uh, commentator, one writer put it this way, currently, culturally, we do not so much give ourselves to a relationship as we expect the relationship to give to us. We're getting into relationships for what we can get out of them. But we're not going into them to give. And that is not what the Bible's picture of marriage is. And if you're going into it for what it's going to give you, well, it might deliver for a short while, but in the end, it's going to deliver you some disappointment. Uh, instead of seeking to serve yourself, this text tells us the best path is to serve. To walk in love, verse 2, as Christ loves. And uh, we've already seen how he loves. He sacrificially loves. He forgives. He nourishes. He cherishes. This is all hard. This is all centered on the other person. This is all giving, self-giving for the good of another person. Uh, and that's what a good marriage is, is built on. This text... This is going to sound like a tangent. It's not. This text does something really interesting, really challenging, pretty controversial, and we should have fun with it. Just telling you that you need to love someone sacrificially in service-like oriented ways um, is hard enough. This text actually goes one step further and tells you exactly what that should look like. 
And uh, most often we don't like it. Generally speaking, we think we know what the other person needs. We know what's wrong with them, so we think. And we know how to fix it. If they would just listen and get it. No, you're not getting it. So we try again. And this text tells us, frankly, we don't, we don't get the other gender. We don't get it. We don't understand. And what we're giving doesn't communicate. And what we're trying is not working. And this text tells us that our sacrificial love has to come in a particular form. And uh, this is the controversial stuff in this text. Some of you are like, what controversial stuff? And some of you are like, I'm glad you're actually talking about this. Verse 22 Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And what Paul is saying here is the kind of loving service that you're called to wives looks like loving submission. Now, before anyone throws anything at me or at Paul, a few, a few provisos. In your whole long life, there may be a few exceptions, but not many. You will only really have to submit to two people. Jesus and your husband. It's not the worst deal in the world. Um, men, you have to submit too. Actually, you know it. Anyone who has a, like works a job, you have to submit. Uh, we all have to submit to Jesus. Um, and wives, you don't actually have to submit to your husband. Um, if, you, if you don't want to submit to them because you don't respect them, then don't marry them. That sounds really rough, but it's true. And, and it's really important that you sort of hear what I'm saying. Um, because what, what Paul is saying here is that God has wired men in such a way that when you respect your husband, this is verse 33, very end of the text, wives, uh, verse 33, let each one love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. When, when wives respect their husband care for them, applaud them, cheer them on. That sounds like love. Your sweet nothings whispered in their ear and your flowers and your chocolates doesn't necessarily communicate if you do that. You telling him that he works really hard and he's great and you're proud of him and your trust in him, your willingness to follow him, that tells him that you love him. Um, this is really counterintuitive. Guys, we're called to lay down our lives like Christ did for his church. To love sacrificially in ways that are deeply sacrificial and to use our words, uh, which is really hard for us. Verses 25 and 29, we're, we're basically Paul is saying that we are called, like Christ, to serve our bride by speaking the word, the gospel, to our, to our wives in, in a way that serves them. And in verse 29, we're called to nourish and cherish them. The way we're called to really do that is with our words. Most guys I know don't want to talk. We don't want to talk. We want to tell our wives often, good job, honey, proud of you. Well done. Doesn't work. Doesn't communicate. In the, in the end, here's what we do. Guys, we give what we want. We give respect to our wives. They want to be nourished and cherished. Women, you give nourishing and cherishing things to your husband. They usually want to be respected. There are exceptions based on personality. For the most part, this is true. We give what we want. We don't give what they need. Not surprised. Lots of couples aren't happy. I'm not sure you love me. What are you talking about? I tell you I love you all the time. I'm not hearing it. I tell you all the time. I did this and this and this. Doesn't sound like love to me. This is sort of a normal pattern. And it's really cool that God has made it this way. I'm going to explain this. Uh, basically, what God is doing in marriage is pulling together 
Two completely different kinds of people. Uh, they're different kinds of people, different things. This is where Paul is going by saying that marriage is like Christ in this church. Completely different kinds of things. Divine Son of God, eternal in glory, sinful people. Somehow joined together. Husband and wife, alike yet different. And uh, they are called to a oneness. And the sacrificial love they give one another is hard. And it's other-centered. And basically, when you are able to give your spouse or your significant other what they need, it encourages them. They grow. They grow. They blossom. And when you're able to actually give them what they need, you also grow. Because it's hard for you to do what you don't naturally do. It's hard for you guys to be cherishing, cherishing, nourishing, gentle, compassionate, loving, sweet-talking, in the good sense of that word, um, phrase, uh, encouragers. And it's hard sometimes for wives to respect their husbands and submit to them. So uh, what I want everyone to hear is this is hard for everybody in the equation. This is hard for husbands. It's hard for wives. But it's really good. It really is. And in the end, when you are able to give the other person what they need, everyone grows. The relationship grows. And you grow into this kind of glory that Paul seems to be talking about in verses 26 and 27. That Jesus served his church with his word that he might sanctify her, that she would grow into this splendor. Marriage is this strange crucible in which we're both placed. And the main ingredients are sacrificial love. And uh, over time, as we sacrificially love one another well, we grow into the beautiful likeness of Jesus. I've been in lots of weddings, like I've said, and uh, a sort of a common refrain, which is sort of sad and true and funny all at once, is you hear so many days a lot, you'll never look better. Um, which is perhaps true. I don't know. Um, the reality is, of course, you're still flawed. Guys, usually unaware of their flaws, don't care. Uh, brides, bridesmaids, typically by the time they walk down the aisle are deeply aware of almost every flaw they have. Maybe. Some of them are, anyway. Uh, the reality, the perception is everyone thinks this is perfect and beautiful. Uh, and perhaps you look back at it that way. The, the, the Bible's portrait of marriage is, now that was a good start. You're called to grow into that perfection and beauty. You think that was splendid? No, it's by your sacrificial love for one another that you actually grow into something that really deeply, truly, from the inside out, looks like your wedding day. Beautiful. Perfect. Wonderful. And so the more beautiful wedding portrait the Bible gives us is here in Ephesians 5. And, uh, hey, I like wedding pictures. We have some. They're up on the wall. I'm actually smiling in mine. If you've never seen me smile in a picture, there's at least a couple that you can find where I really am smiling in a picture. Um, yeah, but here we have a much better wedding portrait. And, uh, and, and we have a, a wedding here that's, that's better than all our high expectations without commitment that sort of marks our marriages today. It's better than our families. Weddings and marriages, whether you're from a broken home or a disappointing home or even a home where they love each other well, the, the picture of marriage that's given here in our text, is, it exceeds that. It's better. We're surrounded by marriages that aren't what they're supposed to be, and it, it marks us. We, we grow up sort of cynical. Uh, but God loves marriage. 
This uh, beautiful wedding, this beautiful marriage is described by Paul in verse 31 and 32 as a mystery. See that word? It's a mystery. I think anyone who's married would say, yeah, marriage is a mystery. I don't get it. It's really good. Been in it for a while. Uh, Still don't quite know what I'm doing. It's really great. Uh, Yep, mystery. And that's all true. It really is. Uh, But Paul is saying the mysterious part of this is that our earthly marriages are very imperfect. Earthly marriages, full of frustrations and uh, and debates and uh, long periods in which sometimes you never think you're right. Or they're right and you're always right. Um, And forgiveness and tears and disappointments. And all that, our marriages reflect God's great relationship with his people. That's what this text is saying. That somehow a husband leaving his family and joining himself to his wife in oneness reflects this really amazing truth that Jesus, the Son of God, loved his people so much that he came and gave himself for her and brought her and made her part of his body. You see that there in verse 28 and 29? That they are one. And the Bible begins with a, a great wedding. It lasts the marriage seems to last for about five minutes. Uh, six lines in the Bible before it's gone and over with. And, uh, it, but it ends, with a, it ends with a wedding. It ends with Jesus, at the end of Revelation, proudly displaying his perfect, beautiful bride, which is his people, which is you if you're in Christ. Uh, our marriages are supposed to be little snow globes that reflect God's love for his church. And... Uh, yeah, that's pretty heady stuff for some of you. You're thinking like, okay, this is great. That might be six, seven, eight years away. Who knows? Uh, what can you be doing about it now? What does this have to do with you now? Well, are you, are you always the kind of person that's nursing un, unrealistic ideals about the next person? Are you shopping for that perfect soulmate? I'm not saying don't have standards. Go back and listen to my sermons on manhood and womanhood. I have standards. Um, But what are they? Um, Are you already the kind of person that realizes, I have really high expectations for others, but I give myself a break so easily. I am blind to my own selfishness and self-centeredness. I think I'm always right. I need to learn. How Jesus' love for me should inform my relationships. Hey, if you want to learn how to be, if you want to prepare to be a good uh, spouse, practice with your roommates. It's the closest thing you're going to have. Seriously, can't love your roommates? Just might struggle with marriage. Um, I know you don't always get to choose your roommates. I'm serious. If you can't ever admit you're wrong, if you can't forgive, if you can't move toward others in love, if you can't serve them, don't think it's going to be a lot easier just because you pick the person and live with them every day. So the mystery is we have marriages that are like little snow globes of the kingdom of God that reflect the good relationship that Jesus has with his people which is us and uh, frankly this is the best wedding portrait ever the portrait the final portrait I want to leave you with the, with the semester is this I, I can't really draw I have no artistic ability whatsoever um, can't draw a straight line with a ruler can't do it um, the um, it's the picture of this is the story of the Bible of the king who has his people And he comes all the way down and gives his life in order to break them, not just his people, but his bride. 
That's the story of the Bible. That Jesus comes all the way down to rescue some people that by nature don't deserve him, don't even necessarily want him. And uh, he loves them uh, until they become beautiful from the inside out. And uh, they become his perfect, beautiful bride. That's how the Bible ends. And uh, the story of the Bible is if you trust in Jesus, that's you. You're already married. Dude, you're a bride. That's just sort of the story. You get to be a bride today and every day. And that's really important because it means you can go into your relationships knowing, I don't need this person to be everything for me. I've already got the Lord Jesus, who is the most perfect person ever, who loves me, who knows me deeply, who forgives me, who's with me. Uh, one of our pastors in our denomination shared the story, and uh, so this is his. Uh, he was officiating a wedding one Saturday. It was a very formal affair down in the south. The wedding party had already pro- proceeded in. The, the bridesmaids had come down. They were off to his right, and the groomsmen were to his left. And as I said before, the pastor always has the best seat in the house. And uh, something different happened this day. As soon as the groom saw the bride come down the aisle... He took off and ran down the aisle to order. Like, he left where he was standing and ran down the aisle to his bride. Which, if you haven't been to a wedding, you're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to come to you. I'm not supposed to say things and start the wedding. Um, so, full sprint towards his bride-to-be. So filled with joy and excitement and delight that he could not wait another 20 seconds uh, for her dad to bring him down. The pastor had to go and fetch him back, uh, hike up his robe and walk down and bring him back. Uh, and, and you may be thinking like, well, that's a sweet story. Or you may be thinking like, what an idiot. What's wrong with that guy? Uh, all you got to do is just wait a second. Um, but forget about the guy. You're not the guy. You're the bride. You're the bride, remember? Jesus is the groom. Remember, this is the story of the Bible. This is the way Jesus feels about his people. He sprints down the aisle. Like, he wants his people that much. He's not willing to wait. He's not waiting for you to come to him. He came all the way down for you. He delights in you. That's the story of the Bible. And that's a story when you really understand its depth, its uh, love, its, its personal nature for you. It has the power to transform not just your wedding, not just your marriage, but all your relationships. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. Not just kindness, we thank you for your passionate.